Welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast about history and how to think about history. For more on this episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can find links and readings related to today's podcast, comment on the conversation, and sign up for our newsletter. And consider becoming a member of the Historically Thinking Common Room, a community of Patreon supporters. Hello, the pandemic of 1346, the Black Death, in some areas of Europe killed as much as 50% of the population. But this first outbreak, while the worst, was not the last. It persisted for three centuries, with at least 30 further outbreaks. Such bare numbers indicate that the Black Death resulted in unimaginable suffering and tragedy from which no one in Europe was untouched. But the Black Death also brought about a cultural and economic renewal. Labor scarcity encouraged the development of new or improved technologies like wind power, water power, and gunpowder. It also led to an increase in the slave trade. A growth in disposable incomes led an increase in the consumption of sugars, silks, spices, furs, gold, and slaves. It was not in spite of the Black Death that Europe flourished, argues my guest James Belich, but because of the Black Death. James Belich is the Bite Professor of Imperial and Commonwealth History at the University of Oxford and co-founder of the Oxford Centre for Global History. His books include a two-volume history of New Zealand, but his most recent book is The World the Plague Made, which is the focus of our conversation today. Jamie Bellich, welcome to Historically Thinking. Thank you very much, Al. As I said, uh, this is a large book. I mean, it, it's bigger even than the actual size of the book. There's so much in this book. So let's start with a very basic question. What's the problem that you're addressing, as you, as you would put it? And what's your response to that problem? What's your argument in response to that problem? I think the central problem is that I've been studying European expansion for a very long time in various ways. And I've never been entirely happy with the orthodox explanations, which tend to uh, emphasize European virtue of some kind. Um, now, you know, all civilizations tend to do that. It wasn't Europeans only, but it so happens to be that happens to be the tradition in, in which we're operating. Mm-hmm. So um, I kept wondering just why was it that this tiny continent of about 5% of the world managed to expand to the point that it did, um, which was basically global hegemony in the 19th century. And I just wanted to know why. And I went back and back and back until I found um, my prime suspect, uh, which was the Black Death. So um, we could say, I mean, we could, we could, review all the various theories of European expansion. There are so many of them, but not all of them emphasize virtue, right? I mean, some of them involve um, sort of evolutionary randomness, what, you know, some of us might call luck. Yes. I I mean, I think contingency plays an enormous role in human history. And um, there's been a tradition, I think, amongst historians to avoid that on the grounds that... um, people are supposed to make their own history. And it's kind of part of the notion that we are not really part of nature and that uh, human history doesn't really consist of anything other than our own agency. Um, But ecological variables um, are in there too. And we have to concede that. Uh, Now, that doesn't mean that um, uh, there's not a difference between those who resiliently or or dynamically grasp new opportunities, you know, there's still huge room for human agency. 
but we have to understand that we aren't always uh, the central focus of the problems of history, and we have to allow ecological factors their role in creating that history. Yeah. Um, well, we'll get back to that at the end because uh, this is uh, this is too too fascinating to neglect. Uh, but what's uh, what's your brief overview of thirteen forty six forty seven when the plague comes to sort of Europe? And we'll talk about beyond Europe. But what are what's and what's your sort of brief uh, thumbnail of that initial shock? Uh, well, I think it began in the Tian Shan Mountains of Kyrgyzstan. And there's been uh, very recent, after the book was published, luckily for me, mm-hmm. confirmation of that <laughs> from scientific researchers. So you know, this is when you when you start messing with scientists, you you you're, you're dealing with fire. But <clears throat> yeah, publications, their publication schedule is, is extreme. That's by right. Our that's right. <laughs> it could have been instantly redundant, but fortunately, the science, yeah. uh, my guess, worked out on the science. And so, so, so by the way, what, for, sorry, what's the what, what's the evidence in the Tian Shan Mountains that the plague originated? That's there? that's where they've traced the the kind of ancestral DNA of the Black Death yeah. too. Um, it's the great marmots of that region. Sorry, the grey marmots of that region that are the the host carriers. But then, I argue that through a combination of um, sort of natural accident, in the sense that the great gerbils of the Kazakh steppe. Uh, going westward, um, uh, transfer plague much more easily than most rodents and much more rapidly. And that with caravans, camel caravans cutting in, it finds its way to the middle Volga, with which it happens to be particularly well connected at the time. And from there, it comes down the Volga uh, with the, the grain trade to the Black Sea and is distributed distributed from there. Now, that may sound sound a bit far-fetched, but there's, it's, this is a curious problem in that it needs to be a bit far-fetched because it only happened twice. So it can't be a kind of regular occurrence. It must be a sort of sequence of unusual circumstances. And as If it happened, happened all the time, we, we would have developed up some better resistance to it than we did uh, because the, the, the Justinian plague and then this plague are cataclysmic ecological events. Absolutely. The, the, the lethality is astonishing. Yeah, um, it's absolutely, it's, yeah. And in fact, um, there was some resistance that emerged over time, but it was, I think, and this is my high speculation really, that it was amongst the rats, not the humans, because um, rats, you know, rat generations are one, one year long. And so um, there are 25 generations of black rats for each human generation. So uh, the development of resistance far more likely there. Yeah. And so it, it, my, my ancestors, the Genoese, uh, uh, who very much friends of this podcast and who you talk, discuss at great length, uh, the bad boys of the Middle Ages, they're the ones that spread it with the grain and slave trade out of the Crimea to the various ports of the Mediterranean. Yes, we've got a lot, lot to thank the Genoese for, that's for sure. You know, um, <laughs> I don't know whether I'll be welcome in power anymore. <laughs> but, um, um, but on the other hand, they're an extraordinary dynamic um, kind of culture, not just state, because it wasn't just the state, it was the genuine the state, the, sta- the, the state stunk, as I think we can agree, but the, uh, but the culture is interesting. Mm. Um, but so it spreads out and it, it, it's extraordinary how fast, and if we had a time-lapse map, we would see it move like uh, a wildfire in Southern California or, or Australia moving from, 
from from place to place, country to country, city to city, following the trade networks. That's right. Um, so it's it's a it's a joint venture between ecological accident that develops this peculiarly lethal disease. It's yeah. linkage with various other natural uh, accidents, as it were, with human connectivity. So you had to have the human connectivity or it would stop in its first village. Yeah. And it, and it happens at precisely that moment in the Middle Ages when trade has become most developed. That's the other sort of crazy accident. You know, the uh, Italian at the moment when the Italian cities and the banking and the wool trade has started to interconnect Western Europe in a ways that it wasn't even connected uh, 50 years before. That's right. Uh, certainly 100 years before. Absolutely. It's true. Uh, but one of the things that comes through is that um, for for there to be the 30 subsequent strikes, aftershocks, as I sometimes call them, of the Black Death itself, uh, in and around 1350, there had to be an ongoing connectivity, which means that the old thesis that this was a period of late medieval depression uh, just doesn't hold up. Right. Let's get to that in a sec. But I, I'm just curious, um, you know, it comes in through, so if it's coming in through the Volga, um, it's being, it's coming on Genoese ships. Genoese ships are equal opportunity traders. They trade with Alexandria as well. So what's often, as you point out, what's often ignored are the, uh, the effects beyond Western Europe. We ignore Eastern Europe, uh, but we also then ignore North Africa. Uh, and we ignore the fact that the rest of the Islamic world and we, or India. So what happens very briefly in the rest of the Mediterranean littoral and then just in sort of beyond the, the, the Mediterranean littoral? Um, I, I might have missed a couple of bits of that, I'm afraid, Al, but um, I get the gist of it. Um, I don't think it made it initially to India. It may have done to um, East Africa, but I think uh, kind of... Um, Eastern Europe, North Africa, and the Middle East were hit roughly as hard as Western Europe. Now, not all agree with that. Uh, and it's true that parts of Persia and parts of Poland were hit later than most inland parts. Uh, because, you know, the most effective form of um, transferring this was the most effective form of transferring bulk goods in which rats could hide. And that was by water, whether sea or river. So, you know, places relatively far away from navigable rivers were hit later. Um, so um, it's basically a West Eurasian phenomenon, not just a European one. What is the, the, you refer to the plague era, we just mentioned it. What is the plague era? How long does it last? Well, my formulation is that the early plague era lasts from about 1350 to about 1500, which is when... Plagues continue, but they no longer completely suppress population growth. And plague continues to be a major variable uh, in West Eurasian history, at least until 1650 and arguably until further, uh, until maybe 1800 in the Middle East. So I refer to that as the late plague era. The first, the early plague era was shared by everyone in West Eurasia. The late plague era terminated at different times in Western Europe, Eastern Europe, and the Middle East and North Africa. So let's address the, let's uh, sum up some of the, the dynamics of the Black Death. Um, 
this is this number of 50% population decrease is is a new one isn't it i mean and this is not everywhere probably but in that it, it's that's a bigger number than people would have said 20 10 20 years yeah, ago absolutely it it very much is um so but the the evidence is is it's it's pretty massive now that yeah. in many regions we did have a toll of about 1 and 2 there are exceptions and there are regions which were hit later than others but that's the the first strike mortality. Later strikes usually had less, well, always had less overall, um, but some were o- almost as lethal and some were almost as widespread. But so there's, there, there, there are immediate aftershocks, as it were, in the 1350s. I can't remember the dates off the top of my head, and I, I stupidly didn't write them down. But there are, in the 1350s and 1360s, there are several sort of immediate aftershocks. I don't know what to th- how to think of them. I may have missed a bit of that too, I'm afraid. But basically, you asked about dates. The the I, I reckon that the the first strike got to the middle Volga region, then came down other Russian rivers to the Black Sea, not the Volga, which goes to the Caspian, um, with the grain trade from about 1345, and it had <clears throat> it had done its dash the first strike by about 1353. And then um, continuous after strikes kept populations at about that level. You know, um, it was a bit of a tortoise in the hare business. Um, populations would recover, and then another strike would prune them back until about fifteen hundred. So, what's the reason for after strikes? They're not. It's not coming back from the Tian Shan Mountains. It's within no, the population. At one time, some scientists thought it did. that great gerbils were charging into Europe um, to start every strike. But but no, what happened is that I think camel caravans in particular uh, could seed new natural reservoirs of plague amongst wild rodents. And they did so especially in, obviously, in the areas that use camels which at that time included quite a bit of southeastern Europe, you know, uh, what we now see as the Ukraine and, and, and Russia, um, and also the Middle East and North Africa. So these new reservoirs were much closer to um, the, the dense human settlements and the dense trade system which carried black rats uh, than had previously been the case. So we've got this catastro- catastrophe uh, one and two, uh, and yet, to economic historians, what follows seems like a golden age. How could they possibly say that? Yes, it's counterintuitive, isn't it? Um, and you know, there's no getting away from the terrible tragedy of um, uh, of half the population dying. Uh, and what's extraordinary, really, is the resilience of the survivors. And those survivors somehow, um, you know, restrained their grief and got back into business and harvested and traded and fought each other uh, quite soon after their local strike of the Black Death. And when they did so, they had twice as much of everything per capita. Now, obviously, it varied according to... um, status and, 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 and the like, but 
<clears throat> you know, even a peasant now had twice as much land, twice as many fishing spots, twice as many carts and twice as many oxen um, that they'd had before. And in a situation where high medieval Europe, before the Black Death, was heavily constrained by inequality and by a lack of um, capital infrastructure as well as capital itself, uh, this suddenly meant that it was a new game. And productivity per person in agriculture went up sharply, not per seed and not per acre, because labour was now scarce and there was no point in being careful about the weeding or the scything. You know, you, you got it done as quickly as you could and you used the most fertile acres and you had more animals to plough and, and provide manure. So it was a different... Uh, a different game. And so there's a, a, peasants, a couple of points there. Sorry, for peasants. Uh, you go ahead. Just one thing. Um, so that I'm, I'm trying to think of how to push back against this. So I might have 40 acres now if I'm a peasant, but so what? I might have just been able to do 20 acres before. How does having 40 acres instead of 20 acres, I have to, how am I going to do 40 acres when I could just barely do 20 acres prior to the Black Death? Um. You 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 will take the twenty most fertile, okay. instead of the instead of doing um, ten infertile acres, you'll do twenty fertile acres, mm -hmm. and you'll have more twice the oxen, and uh, twice the, the the implements, including much more iron uh, for your plowshare and so on, <clears throat> and and so you you will be more productive per capita. And the and it's a, a fortunate thing. It, things have been very different if domestic animals had also died, somehow been infected by the Black Death. Sorry, I missed that. Oh. It, things would have been very different if oxen, horses, and other domestic animals had also been infected by the Black Death. That's right. This is what was so peculiar about this. You know, other catastrophes like famine or earthquakes or tsunamis, uh, mm -hmm. they tend to destroy well, certainly um, tsunamis and earthquakes and volcanoes, uh, property and domestic animals as well as people. Uh, the Black Death did not. It was like some sort of horrible biological warfare that killed humans only and let everything else, left everything else intact. Humans and rats, that is. <clears throat> so... Who benefits in this golden age and uh, for how long? Could you repeat that, please? Who benefits in this golden age and for how long? Um, well, um, most people benefit for the first 150 years, uh, including for the first time in, in, in centuries, um, the lower orders. And we can see this from all sorts of evidence, um, including skeletal evidence, which shows an increase in heights amongst peasants. The higher orders benefit even more, especially the sort of emerging middle class traders. Um, kings and princes and bishops do pretty well too, because they inherit twice the manors and twice the, twice the kingdoms um, that had previously been the case. So um, it's across the board until about 1500. After that, the population starts to increase and the peasants lose their leverage. There is now 
a surplus of labour in this reorganised low labour regime. And so the golden age ends pretty swiftly for most peasants after 1500. So more wealth um, means more consumption. So what do people want to consume after the Black Death? They, They consume kind of what they did before, but in larger quantities and across a larger range of social status. And so um, you'll find that uh, the demand, for example, for cured fish, mainly cod and herring, uh, which is important for Lent. And after the Black Death, the last thing you want to do is annoy God again. <clears throat> um, so, the, so the demand for that goes up. And that goes you know, around the lower orders as well as the higher orders. For the higher orders, they want more spices and more silk and and more slaves, and so they start reaching out for them. Mm-hmm. Um, you refer to this, uh, you refer to the plague revolutions. What are the plague revolutions? The transition in technology, um, the technolog- technological element, um, so a much greater use of water power, a much greater use of wind power, um, and a much greater use of gunpowder, all of which save labor. Gunpowder saves labor by reducing the training time of a soldier. It takes you 10 years to train a good archer. It takes you 10 weeks to to train a decent musketeer. So there's a sudden big uptake of firearms not because they're necessarily better yet in terms of the muskets compared to bows, uh, but because they require much less training. Mm-hmm. What, what are some other, besides that, what are some other plague incubated technologies, as you call them? I mean, the, anything that will enable you to not to be able to farm all those 40 acres, not just the fertile 40 acres, I suppose. That would that would be what you would want. There are there there are some things like that, um, and and that's often counterintuitive. Like you build bigger barns, that means that you can do your threshing indoors, uh, whereas before you did it outdoors, and it took you know about a third of the work of harvesting. So you could now do it more slowly because you had scarce labour inside the big barn. You started using scythes, which use a lot more iron. Uh, then sickles, uh, because you could afford it now. Uh, now, scythes cut, mow uh, a harvest much faster than sickles. They lose more seed, but you weren't worried about that. Huh. And then there, at, at other levels, there are also major technological changes. I mean, I'm not the first to say this. Um, a guy called David Hurley was the first. Um, but printing, the, you know, Gutenberg and the mechanical printing is... Um, pretty clearly a plague technology that emerges under the new pressures that are created How? by plague. How? Okay. The, the, after, the, after the Black Death, you've got half the families, half the kids, the children, and twice the money to spend on them. Uh, and you've got a surprisingly low decrease in the number of readers, absolutely, let alone per capita, uh, readers are increased by, you can look at signs of um, big increases in the output of spectacles, eyeglasses, 
which means you can read into the evening, you can read after, you're, after you've started to lose your sight in the 40s, in, in your 40s. Uh, there's much more uh, window glass produced, and this gives people better light, much more whale oil for, to supplement wax candles for lamp. So you get a bit of a, a, a kind of a literary transition, a, a visual transition, more readers. They buy up manuscripts after an initial dip at a great rate, and um, they start developing techniques to speed up scribal productivity. And, you know, things like, um, I don't know whether you're old enough to remember those um, sort of blue sheets you put under a piece of paper when you're handwriting a letter to give yourself an extra copy. I mean, things like that emerge in this period. And they start using woodcuts um, from which print a timber image, you know, etched on wood, which prints an image on a page. And eventually through these steps, you see a huge increase in book production and consumption before the advent of printing. And you can see that it's all comes in steps from from about the 1360s to the 1450s when Gutenberg um, puts it all together. So we got an immense cultural change, which leads to a technological response. Yes, um, and it's demand-driven, like the other changes. I mean, the Koreans have invented mechanical printing technology a bit earlier, um, but it's not clear that this is connected to that. Um, and there, there, there's also the scribal tr- transition has been forgotten. And although print technology doesn't go to Eastern Europe or to the Middle East, the scribal transition, many more scribes, many more notaries, many more artists assisted by um, the visual, the changes in in, uh, providing light to read, they do extend to the rest of West Eurasia. And they enable states like the Ottomans and the Russians to run big armies and run centralized states. Uh, they help in the West too, but it's really the Ottomans who do it on, the, on a grand scale first. The, um, and, and these things are changing with, you, you go into many details, armor, uh, swords, uh, there's more iron, there's, and then it leads to better steel, um, all those, and of course, and of course ships, uh, ships. Uh, as you have... Mm. Ships are really the key technology in some respects. Um, the, the, there is better steel armor um, and there are better steel crossbows, but eventually they're outcompeted by their rivals, namely firearms, which is too powerful, which are too powerful for any kind of armor to stop. <clears throat> but as far as ships are concerned, what happens after the, after the, the big hit, the Black Death in the 1350s, is um, that because labor is so expensive, there's a shift from ore power to sail power, which is obviously cheaper, and to bigger ships, which use less labor per ton of cargo capacity. Mm. And this, ship, this shift goes through various traceable steps and eventually results in a three-masted, full-rigged ship, which doesn't need any oars at all. Now, that's a big, big shift for any society because prior to that, your sail-only ships were used only in particular seas and particular seasons for which they were built. Now you have a generalist sailing ship which can more or less survive and manoeuvre in any sea and any season. 
and it comes to be called the Karak, and then the military version comes to be called the Galleon. Um, you make the interesting point that these revolutions tend to plateau after 1500. Could you explain that and, and why? I'm sorry, I missed that. Was it was it why why the revolution kicks off in some places and not in others? Or? Yeah, let's go with that. Yes. Um, well, you know there are pre-existing advantages. Um, for example, to, to to take full advantage of um, of of the new use of water power to um, to create blast furnaces, which greatly increase iron production you have to have the fast running water supplies and you had them more in the north than in the south. Um, so, and you had to have some Atlantic coast coastline to develop ocean going galleons. So um, there are variables, but um, as far as most other things were concerned, the changes happen pretty much as rapidly in, in the Ottoman empire as in Western Europe. You write Incremental improvement continued after 1500. Major innovation did not. Could you explain that? Um, yeah, I think that's the case. And I think that there's, um, I don't think that's particularly controversial. I mean, most would agree, most historians would agree that there's no huge changes in military technology uh, until about 1840, really. And similarly in naval technology. You know, and similarly in until about 1820 in printing and so on. So um, there's a spurt of innovation and um, it's and, and, and then a, a kind of real slowdown. And the spurt of innovation corresponds with the early plague era. Let's talk about labor. I've, um, I've already referred to slavery. And the and the increase in the slave trade. So we've got a paradox. The Black Death leads to the diminution, not the ending, but the the diminution of serfdom. But at the same time, it's leading to new forms of chattel slavery. Is that would that be an accurate sort of that these two yes. things are crossing? Yes. The 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 um the the demand for slaves clearly goes up. And the supply within West Eurasia clearly goes down. So you either try to take your slaves from rivals by force or by purchase, or you try to go outside the region entirely and find new sources of slaves. And what are they being used for and where? Um, <clears throat> well, I, I suspect that, you know, a lot of people think that they're a status symbol to have a, a, a female slave in, in the household as a domestic servant. And that's probably true. But I think that during um, the Golden Age, uh, lower class free workers got used to avoiding or being paid very highly for the worst kinds of work. You know, being a, rowing a galley, uh, working in a deep mine where your chances of survival over more than a couple of years were very low. And work of a similar kind <clears throat> got associated with being with working like a slave. So they weren't prepared to do that kind of work anymore. 
And even after the Black Death, even after the population recovery from about 1500, they were very reluctant to do those kind of, that kind of work, particularly to migrate and do it. Yeah. So that's yeah. why they enlisted, that's why Europeans enlisted African slaves to do their dirty work for them in, uh, in the process of expansion. But this, this fits in with like convicts being used as labor for working in the salt mines in Poland or, or, or Germany. Right. They would, they, would, they would be used by convicts, you know, hence sent yeah. to the salt mines. Um, exactly. And galley slaves would be convicts. So, um, yeah. you know, no one's going to touch this kind of work unless they have to. So you, you make the argument, you're making the sensible argument, it was, I think it's sensible, that um, the, the, uh, the theoretical... Theoretical racism follows sort of practical and cultural racism. Yes, I think that um, that there's a kind of um, uh, emergence of racism, though I'm not sure how closely it's connected to the Black Death, uh, that um, arises from its utility uh, for expansion. Um, and um, the notion of uh, of oppressing other people's dispossessing them or using them as slaves uh, obviously makes racism convenient to justify that. But even more, I think, the people who went to the Americas, for example, wanted to continually assert their parity with metropolitans. There was an idea that if you moved to the forests of, of the Americas or to the wilderness of any kind, you would degenerate and you would cease to be a first-class, first-world citizen. Now, this is the, the, the settler counterattack ideologically, and you can see it coming through in people like um, uh, Benjamin Franklin uh, later on, um, saying that, no, um, because it's race from which our shared virtue derives, we have got just as much of it as you even though we're out here on the frontier and you're back there in Paris or Barcelona. So it emerges, I think, in, in the 15th century, um, essentially first in Spain, because Spain's the first to engage in this kind of exercise on a large scale. Mm -hmm. But the um, can we talk briefly? Well, you're very good at coming up with, um, I don't know what to call it, very uh, catchphrases, <laughs> terms. I, I really admire your ability to come up with things like this term crew culture. Um, we should talk about later how you come up with these phrases. I, I don't know how you do. How, it, there's so many of them, but they're so helpful. Um, so what is crew culture? And because it strikes, this is a hugely important insight. Um, yeah, I actually came up with it um, when I was working on the history of 19th century New Zealand and of other settler mm -hmm. frontiers, including the American West. And uh, basically what comes through is that people assume you've got town folk and country folk. But in mm -hmm. fact, in these sort of booming frontier communities, you've also got a third sector, which is um, single men working in crews. Now, not just naval crews, but any kind of team, you know, laborers, navvies, lumberjacks, um, whalers, sealers, buffalo hunters, as well as the obvious soldiers and sailors. So a culture emerges around these occupations 
which means that you can shift from one to the other and kind of know where you are. Um, you you may it may you, it, the crew may be new, new to you, but like a like a school classroom, you know, there's a desk, there's a teacher, there's chalk, and there's a blackboard. So you basically know where you are. Uh, and what I added to this when looking at the Black Death thing was that I suspect the if not the very emergence, but certainly the supercharging of crew culture was a consequence of the Black Death. Because um, after, the, after the Black Death, one of the first developments you see is areas which were marginal for growing grain, giving up on it because it's just too hard in the context. And they can now import it either by waterways from a distance or from the valley below, short range. So they just stopped doing it. Now that means that they, their men, they, they turn instead to things like um, dairy farming and sheep raising and um, linen production. It means that their men are surplus to requirements for part of the season. And they therefore can go out and work elsewhere. Now, as those developments increase, they can actually go out for years years on end. So you get these mobile disposable males who provide a cutting edge for European expansion overseas and for European militarism within Europe. Yeah. You can so you can see that immediately that that despite the Black Death, why does Edward III's army I don't know if it increases, but it stays more or less the same. And then we've got the routiers. We've got uh -huh. these the the the, the and brigands throughout. I mean, there's the immense. They they really take off after the Black Death, right, which is so counterintuitive. It, it's so counterintuitive. But this makes when you realize that there's a continual crew culture from those routiers all the way through Francis Drake and J James and onwards to a bunch of lumberjacks getting off the train in I don't know Brainerd, Minnesota, right. half in the bag and setting up a lumber camp. Absolutely. Um, it, you see that there's a continual sort of crew culture going on from that. Right. And it tends to have the same characteristics. When yeah. you get paid, and, and it, you take your money and you drink it as fast as Yeah, possible. exactly. But the other beautiful thing about this is you read something like two years before the mast, you know, um, Dana's account of uh, a rich Boston boy going to the West Coast. Crew culture is the same for like in Moby Dick or a lumberjack. I mean, or a navvy, you know that that it, it not there's certain they're more or less you can move from being a lumberjack to being a whaler, in a weird way because you're part of uh, right. that ma that male society, even in very different parts, as well as moving from one gold rush to another gold rush, which people do all the freaking time. That's right, and the gold rushes are just the kind it, of last hurrah of yeah of that crew culture, yeah, yeah. So. Somehow, however, and this is really important, and I've actually, I'm, I'm, I've thought a lot about this myself. How do you, how the hell do you get women to join a crew culture? You how do you, how do you, get, how do you get women to migrate? Uh, well, the, 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 they, there are actually women involved in crew culture, often as um, prostitutes. Sure. So but um, you, there is a small but, female crew culture, which has an important. Um, influence on the culture and they tend to be slightly more stable and stationary and um you know kind of more dynamic and independent than you would imagine you know they're not they're not as anywhere near when you can see any evidence not as anywhere near under the male thumb as you might 
assume. Um, but mostly... <laughs> they have bargaining power. Right, exactly. <laughs> but mostly um, um, crew cultures didn't... The, the crewmen, crewmen, did not marry European woman. Um, yeah. They, the, the European woman uh, came out uh, for um, various reasons, of which I think the most important was that they tended to come from regions that had previous successful experience of short-range family migration. Mm-hmm. So um, the Ulster Scots or the Scotch-Irish, as I think you call them in the States, um, they have previously experienced a migration from Scotland to Northern Ireland and other parts of Ireland. And England. And England. Let's, let's, uh, yeah. <laughs> the borders. Yeah. Let's just and, then they, and then they do another migration in the 18th century. You know, the first mass migration in the world, arguably, uh, across to the 13 colonies. Similarly, in Spain, most of the women come from Andalusia, which has been recolonized by the Spanish after the um, Reconquista. Um, similarly, it's the, it's, the Cane- it's the Atlantic islands like Madeira, which provide a hugely disproportionate number of the, Spanish, of the Portuguese women that go to Brazil. So it's these areas with previous experience. But the other gender dimension I think is equally interesting. Um, Back in the crew regions, which were the sources of these crew cultures, they tend to be coastal or mountainous or both, um, half the men never come home. And so the cemeteries, you know, have half as many men as they have women, adult men, I mean. Like, like the Basque country would be a classic example of this, the mountainous by the sea. Right. So many ba- so many Basques in colonial Mexico, right. uh, given their population. Right, and uh, there are some even more like Galicia and, uh, yeah. well, Switzerland was one too, you know, for soldiers. Mm-hmm. They didn't necessarily go to the Americas. But um, uh, so back in, back, in, back in the home country, women have much more power. Back in the, back in the crew regions, uh, you find that... Um, that there's quite a high rate of illeg- illegitimacy, but that it's kind of woman-led. You know, it's understood that, oh, I mean, your husband's away for five years, so what if you take a couple of lovers? And there's folklore that says um, when your husband comes back, you hang his trousers on the washing line so that your lovers know to stay away. Um, and they're, they're, so, so there's an extraordinary sort of uh, two-faced gendered history here, uh, which applies both to settlers and, and, you know, to get European settlers, if you're racist, racist enough to assume that they, that at least their mothers, that, that both their mother and their father have to be European to maintain your racial parity, um, you, you, you really have to work hard. And uh, it's, it's still a minority, and it's only from these particular regions that they come. That, it's, it's, it's women that mattered in the reproduction of European societies overseas. Mm-hmm. Um, let's, what is the expansion kit, uh, that the plague created and, uh, what were its effects? Well, it's the, it's, it's my little term for, um, a package of things, uh, including galleons, guns, not just muskets, but also cannon. The thing about cannon was that if you've got a ship carrying 30 or 40 cannon and a broadside, that even a small crew can defeat any other craft, defend itself from any other craft at sea, except its own kind. Now, it can't do much inland, and so a lot of European expansion is actually restricted 
in um, Asia in particular, to the coastal regions. Uh, but on, on top of the guns and the galleons, you've also got um, uh, your, your crew, crewmen, which is part of the expansion kit, mm-hmm. uh, and um, the kind of um, literary bureaucratic machinery, I guess you'd call it, that enables you to stay in touch with um, the homeland, ask for reinforcements, report back, and um, basically cruise around until you find a weak spot. Now, the expansion kits of Ottomans and Russians are a bit different, but that's the maritime version. And it can include um, sort of unintended biological warfare. Until big steamships in the late 19th century, you couldn't carry plague across oceans, but you could carry some other diseases, which plague-enhanced connectivity had distributed through the whole of Europe by about the 1490s. Uh, Smallpox, for example. And eventually, you could transfer these to the Americas, say. And, of course, most um, Europeans by this time had had smallpox in their youth, so most had had a degree of immunity, which peoples like the Aztecs Aztecs did not share. So suddenly, when you arrive in Mexico, um, the the opposition starts falling down dead before you even point a gun at them. Mm you have four chapters devoted to the Muslim South. And so I don't want to neglect that in the course of our conversation. Um, what changes did the Black Death cause in the Muslim South? Um, different, different changes, but the notion that, um, that even amongst those historians who suspect, economic historians who suspect that the Western Europe might have done quite well from the Black Death, they still tend to accept that the Muslim South was too conservative. Um, but I don't think this uh, stacks up against the evidence, or at least as much of the evidence as I can access. You you actually find that the uptake of guns is very, very nearly as early as that of Europe. Um, now, you know, they, they, they are derived from Europe, um, Muslim guns, but most European guns are supply, derived from the sort of heartland of gun production, which is in and around what's now Belgium. Uh, and, in a, and a belt stretching down to northern Italy. So, um, so they adopt that. They adopt um, eyeglasses, for example, which you know gets twice as much work from their scribes who are counting off the tamariots as they assemble each year and making sure they've got their full kit. Um, they take up gun galleys and gunboats, though not galleons. And Turkish gun gun galleys as soon as good, as, are pretty soon as good as anyone's. And uh, Turkish riverboats, this is something that's not widely known, are particularly good. And they use the Danube um, and so on to to deploy these as military weapons. And so they have the first regular army in the world, the first regular artillery train in the world, and the biggest. They produce um, three or four times as much gunpowder as the Spanish Empire. And um, uh, they're, they're in the lead of adaptation to plague, of, of plague-adapted technologies, not necessarily in terms of invention, but in terms of uptake and efficient use. Uh, then they and the Spanish Empire, for various reasons, decline. Uh, but, you know, perhaps we get to that later. Yeah. Well, I'm not sure we have time. But um, they also have all the consumption desires 
that Western Europe has. Uh, they want the spices. They want the slaves. And this is what, as many historians have acknowledged, is particularly irritating to Europeans now they've got the cash to buy. They're yeah. buying through Muslim middlemen. And the Muslim middlemen are taking a cut. You know, you can be sure that the Sultan of the Mamluks is taking his cut on the pepper you buy at Alexandria. You can be very confident about that. Um, and so this is another incentive to try to outflank the Muslim South um, and uh, get your own access to um, the spices of the Indies, which is, of course, what Columbus is after when he bumps into America. And, and access to sub-Saharan slaves. Sorry? And access to sub-Saharan slave, oh, yes, slave trade absolutely. as well. And gold. Um, yes. It's an important source of gold initially. But, um, yeah, and, uh, of course, the it's the access to trade. It's initially raids by Europeans, but then very quickly they realize that that's not going to work too well. <clears throat> and so they, they start trading with coastal African polities. And this terrible Atlantic slave trade begins. The Ottomans also so, had their own slave trade which is almost yes. as big, but not yes. quite as terrible. Well, it's, it depends on the perspective of the slave, I guess. Um, what's uh, Ming Muslim globalization to continue this, 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 uh, this thread of, of, of the Muslim, um, effects in the Muslim world of the Black Death? You refer to Ming Muslim globalization, and you discuss this fascinating, essentially city-state of Hormuz, um, and its role in this eastern connection of the of the Muslim lands to to China. Yeah, my hypothesis there is that um, um, you know the, the the sort of front line of trade acquisition for West Eurasia is the Persian Gulf and the Red Sea, and their dominant mercantile cities are Hormuz and Aden. And I think we can, from as early as the 1360s, even see an upturn in uh, merchants and Sufis, you know, um, scholars, <coughs> uh, sorry, um, not so much scholars as um, missionary, <coughs> uh, missionary holy men um, going out from um, Persia and Arabia and South, Southern Arabia um, to um, India and Southeast Asia and East Africa. <laughs> now, they've been going there before. Muslims have been going there before for a long time. But I think there's a, you can trace a clear uptick in this. Um, now, once they, you know, with, with, to cut a long story short, they join hands with a very unusual Chinese outreach, which is the, the remarkable voyages of Zheng Ha, um, which... 17 of them at least take place in the, uh, or is it 13, in, in the early, in, in, in sort of 1404 to 14, 1433, roughly. And they make it all the way to the Persian Gulf and the Red Sea. So these, these two processes intertwine and uh, sort of a kind of joint um, uh, Sino-Muslim uh, trade entrepot suddenly rockets uh, into existence at Malacca, um, not far from where Singapore now is. You know, it's a natural hub of various uh, various monsoon monsoon routes. So routes, I suppose you say in the States. Um, so um, this kind of 
generates more spice production, more silk production, and it generates a kind of already booming and dynamic trade, which the people like Da Gama in 1498 and other Europeans after him plunge into and try to hijack. Yeah, yeah. and they do. I mean, it's amazing to think that, that was it the Duke of Albuquerque is fighting in the Straits of Malacca by, I think, 1510 or so. They basically are hijacking. They've stumbled into this pre-existing network, which they then appropriate for themselves. Right. Right, yeah. um, and and they don't entirely succeed in appropriating. <laughs> it's, um, it's too. It's far too big. I yeah, mean, in a way, yeah. it's it's. But they do, they do. You know, there's 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 a. You know, you've got the Indian Ocean divided into the Arabian Sea and um, the Bay of Bengal. You've got Southeast Asia. You've got the China China Sea. There are different sort of things in that, and and you know the Chinese might dominate in one. And Malacca might, or, or Ache, really, after Malacca has been taken by the Portuguese, might dominate in another, um, and uh, Southern Arabia might dominate in another. But it's the Europeans who come at least second in each. Mm-hmm. So they have access to more than one, and they can bring stuff all the way from Nagasaki to, uh, to, to Europe. And suddenly they've cut out the middleman, even though the middle, middleman is still operating. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, finally, um, it also makes sense that there are Muslim colonial empires, just as there are European colonial empires. I mean, really, when I think about it, reading the book, of course, the Ottomans in southeastern Europe is a colonial empire. For Albania is a colonial uh, colonial space, as far as the Ottomans are concerned. Yeah, uh, but there are others. Yes, it kind of depends on your definition of colonial empire. The sort of, yeah, exactly. The, the common common usage seems to be that it it's a um, it's an empire. It, it's a metropolis connected to its colonies by sea. Mm-hmm. Now, I suggest that it doesn't have to be by sea. It could be by some sort of long range trail that gets you from A to B, from A to C. Let's say without much affecting the space in between, which is B. So uh, an American analogy would be the period when um, uh, early Californian history, when there's a, a chunk of real American settlement around San Francisco in the, 13, uh, in the uh, 1850s, um, but there's nothing really between that and, and the uh, Mississippi River, or not very much. So that's a kind of outpost and it's, it's usually reached by going through hostile Indian territory, um, if you can. So the, the space between is not part of America's domain, whereas the space you get to is a kind of overland little colony of the United States. And the Russians have a similar thing in Siberia. They don't have much control over the space between the prime fur trapping areas and the prime trade routes to China, but they do have those prime spots. And similarly with the Moroccan long-range empire in Songhai, sub-Saharan Africa, it's it's at least a thousand kilometers from, from Morocco. Uh, and you only get there by camel caravan, not by uh, caravel convoy. Um, but it's similar, you know, they, they, they use the same techniques as the conquistadors, possibly even some of the same personnel, because they've got a lot of um, Spanish renegades with them. 
Uh, they use guns. They even use gunboats on the Niger River, which same as the Spanish used them on Lake Tenochtitlan in Mexico. So, um, and the Russians are using gunboats in in uh, Siberia too. Or, or the or the Ottomans are using on the Danube, as you said earlier. Uh, th- this is the same sort of the same sort of thing is going on in all these places. That's right, and the Mughals use them too in Bengal yeah. in particular. So. Um, we have to stop talking about the actual uh, history and let's talk about uh, something about how you put this book, came to this book. Uh, for you, this book follows very logically on everything you've previously written. Would that would that be right? Yes, it does. You know, I've always been after the um, uh, the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, which is a, a kind of non-Euro, non-Euro biased explanation for Europe's remarkable expansion. And in getting there, I, I'm afraid I had to accuse the Middle East and North Africa of being colonialists too. Um, but there must have been, I mean, so you've been collecting notes for this for a long time, but there must have been points when you were putting this together and you were thinking, you know, am I mad for doing this? This is, this is, just, this is just too much. Every second day. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it was... You know, the trouble is you don't really realize how you, you don't really realize, I don't know. I mean, it's something like um, forgetting the pain of pregnancy, perhaps, you know, after you've written a big book, you, you kind of sort of deliberately forget just how difficult it is. And well, there I mean, have you, been times you, when I always... Your books are all big, though. I mean, yeah, two, right. you wrote... I mean, like, your is that your first book was actually two volumes? I mean, that was the History of New Zealand? That was, uh, is that the first? Yeah, well, no. That, 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 my, my first two was... This is number six. Okay. Monographs. But, I mean, so, you've, already got, you've already got a two-volume history in your, back, in, the, in your rearview mirror. So I guess this was short compared to that. Um, no, not really, because they now make bigger <laughs> books. Um, but no, this was particularly difficult because, um, as you can see, it covers a lot of histories and a lot of topics and a lot of regions. And it's, 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 and this is something I did do in my New Zealand histories too. It kind of second guesses the experts, which seems ungrateful because you're also reliant on them. Um, but the hope is, um, that you can provide a sort of comparative breadth, which will enhance their depth, as well as vice versa. Um, well, that- so you, you, it basically shows, I think it's a technique of global history that tries to um, use useful perspectives from wherever ever it can get them to focus on particular problems, in this case, the rise of Europe, um, and, uh, you know, I think they can give us a kind of broader understanding of um, some old historical problems, as well as create some new historical problems, no doubt. Um, you know, when I was when I was an undergraduate, uh, these are the kind of books I like to read. And when I and I thought that if I became a historian, they were the kind of the books I wanted to write. But I think grad school beats it out of you. Um, and um, do you think that's fair? I mean, this is, it feels to me, this is, you're, you go, you're going against the grain uh, when you're writing. I mean, I don't know how good your Arabic is, but um, I, I don't know if you are able to read the archives about the city of Hormuz. Unfortunately for this one, uh, I'd have to read about a hundred languages to, 
Exactly. Exactly. So it, this is not the way. This is not the way. Uh, uh, I. <clears throat> It, this makes me feel very uncomfortable just even thinking about attempting something like this. I feel guilty. Yeah, that is a that is a um, there's a strong and to some extent reasonable assumption that you should be skilled in your speciality and not go beyond it. Now, if you're going to stick in one speciality, that's good. But as soon as you start to go to try to compare three or four or seven or twenty one, um, it becomes non viable. And you either leave those kind of um, synoptic books to, um, shall we say, dogmatic theorists or to populist historians. There are some very good popular historians. Um, and I don't think we should do that. So I've stopped doing it and I've become a general historian, even though it means that I'm sort of trespassing and standing on people's toes and trying to triangulate from the information I know, fully aware that there might be a lot more out there that I don't know. Mm -hmm. So what's your recommendation then to people who want to be generalists in this way? I mean, they're, they're, I mean, you are now, you're old in sin. Uh, and this is, you're, it's no big deal for you. But for some of us who are like, who would fret about becoming a generalist in this way, what, how, where should we start? I think there's still a lot in general history, uh, in global history and in general history, that can help. Um, I think it's a matter of um, reading secondary sources that may cast light on yours, however abstract it might feel. So, um, you know, uh, the similarities between Texas and the Transvaal, which are both, um, uh, both not initially Anglophone, but getting taken over by Anglophone settlers uh, because they've got a lot of resources. Um, now, all you need to speak there is Afrikaans and uh, English. Um, so, um, but, but, you know, even if there was a good book on the Transvaal and you were writing something about Texas, you'd have to ask yourself, now, why is it that it's particularly Anglo cultures that although they're doing pretty damn well, in Mexican-run, Spanish-Mexican-run Texas, and pretty well in Africana-run Transvaal, in one case in the 1830s, in the other case in the 1890s, they're still not happy. They still have to take over, even though they're being treated quite generously and making money hand over fist. Mm -hmm. And, and the, the answers in one case might not provide the answers in the other, but they may cast light on them, help you to kind of think your way through that problem by taking a taking a, a, a sort of perspective from somewhere else. Um, you know, there are many other examples I could come up with. I've recently had a student um, complete a comparative study of Odessa and New Orleans, and she did speak the relevant languages. Um, uh -huh. But and, and, you know, I think the comparisons are genuinely interesting because they're both yeah. rapidly growing settler cities. Um, that kind of um, get reined in after an initial period. Yeah, the, the rivers, grain trade, all those things, slave trade. Mm. Um, but they, they, that's very interesting. So these are the, an example of an ex, what you refer to as uh, experiments in intensive global history. Um, my, my kind is the intensive kind where you take on a big subject like uh, one that I'd like to see addressed but dare not address myself as – uh, the origins of gender disparity. Mm -hmm. um, so ideally a whole team would do that. 
But, you know, we historians tend to be too ornery to work in teams, unlike crew. Uh, so we end up sort of going solo. Um, and, you know, basically I'm, I'm, now I'm, I'm, I'm sort of at the top of my career, I guess you'd say, um, and, and I'm willing to guess into gaps and I'm willing to take a risk. I'm not necessarily recommending this to um, people at the earlier stages of their careers. Yeah, but what what else is tenure for? Absolutely. Yeah. If you can't do it when you're um, a statutory professor at Oxford, well, when when can you? Yeah, exactly. My guest today has been Jamie Belich. He's the author of The World, The Plague Made. Jamie, thank you so much for being part of Historically Thinking. Thank you very much. Great talking to you. And thanks so much to you as well for being a part of Historically Thinking. If you like the podcast, then share it with a friend or many friends. Vivian Lundy is our assistant producer. John Ruddat is our sound engineer. I'm Al Zambone, and I'll be back next week with more history to think about and to shape the way we think about the present. 